0: Good morning everyone. I'm going to be reading from 2 Peter chapter 1. That's found on page 860 of the Church Bibles. If you'd need a Bible, please put your hand up and the ushers can come and give you one. So we're going to read the whole chapter, 2 Peter 1. So from the top left column on page 860. We're starting there. Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them, And are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit.
1: Thanks so much, Paul. It is great to be here with many people I have known for lots of years, Uh, but also there are lots of you I haven't met before and I'd I'd love to catch up with you over the next few weeks while Sue and I are able to be with you. Uh, It'll be really handy to have the Bibles open at that reading if you're able to do that, 2 Peter chapter 1, so it's page 860. I'm planning to work our way through it uh, and also you'll see there, as Barb mentioned earlier, there's an outline in the leaflet that just gives you an idea of where we're heading this morning. So let me me pray and let's uh, consider God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who speaks. And Father, we pray that as we hear you speaking to us by your word, uh, you'll speak to our minds and hearts, that you'll help us uh, to understand your purposes for us, uh, that you'll shape our thinking and our behaviours, our expectations, our hopes, our dreams. Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. On the 12th of August in the year 2000, uh, the submarine, the Kursk, it was uh, the, the pride of the Russian naval fleet at the time, it sank on the Barents Sea when it was in naval exercises. Apparently what happened was there were some explosions that occurred on board And as a result, uh, the submarine just wasn't able to stay afloat. It sank to the bottom of the Barents Sea. And at the time, people weren't sure if there were any survivors on board and it triggered an international rescue operation, Uh, at least after a few days it did, because the Russians weren't able to retrieve the sub in a short space of time. When they uh, retrieved the sub, they discovered that there were 23 men who were able to make their way to the stern of the ship into a, a lock, into a section of the, the submarine that hadn't been destroyed. And they were alive probably for somewhere between four and six hours after the submarine went down. Uh, no light and uh, an air supply that was just being eaten through by these 23 guys in the sub. When they uh, got them to the surface, one of the guys who had survived was a... Uh, Captain in the Navy, uh, his name was Captain Dmitry Koleshnikov, uh, and they, they found a note in his pocket, uh, which they were able to, to pull out and read. I want you to imagine that you are in the dark, uh, in a submarine you know, has uh, no way of getting to the surface, your air supply is going, you've got several hours... And you have the opportunity to write a letter. Who are you going to write to and what are you going to write about? It's pretty obvious really. What you would do is you would write to the ones you love about the things that matter most. Uh, Dimitri, he wrote to his wife Olga. They'd been married for less than a year. And he wrote to her about his heartbreak of the fact that they wouldn't be able to grow old together, have children together, have grandchildren together and experience life. And he wouldn't even be able to say goodbye to her in person. If you get that that scene, then you understand the setting for this letter uh, to Peter. And we're going to look at it over the next three weeks. And we're looking at a man who is writing about his experiences of Jesus, but he's getting towards the end of his life. And the Apostle Peter had lived an amazing life. He was just an obscure fisherman uh, that Jesus had plucked out of obscurity to go with him for three years. And the same Jesus who plucked Peter out of the water when he was sinking. Uh, and Peter had been able to observe Jesus do quite extraordinary things. Uh, Peter saw Jesus speak to a raging storm the way we'd we'd speak to a dog, except the storm obeyed, right? He saw Jesus do phenomenal things. He'd walked with him, observed his teaching. He'd seen Jesus go to the cross and be crucified. He was gutted by that experience, in part because of the loss of Jesus and in part because he'd actually denied Jesus at that time because he was gutless. Then it had all changed when Jesus had been raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit had been poured out. He'd been a transformed man. He met Jesus, who'd restored him, forgave him and put him back into ministry. And now he'd been doing that for years, preaching about Jesus to a hostile world and he knows that he's about to die. You picked it up as you heard the reading when you get to verse 13 and 14 of this opening chapter. He says, know, I know that I'll soon put it, that is, his body or his life, aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And so, just like Dimitri, his thoughts turn to the people that he loves. You pick it up in the first verse to fellow believers with a faith as precious as ours. The people he loves about the things that matter most you look at verse 10 he says make your calling and election sure stand firm uh, why do they need to stand firm well, we'll see it unfold as we go through this letter when you get to the beginning of chapter 2 uh, they to stand firm in the face of false teaching that had obviously infected this ch- this church or these series of, of churches uh, there will false prophets among the people it says at the beginning of chapter 2 just as there will be false teachers among you when you get to chapter 3 we're told that Peter is writing to them as they await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and warning about these false teachers and what they're going to say and verses 3 and 4 he says scoffers will come saying where is his coming You said Jesus is going to return. So where is he? It's been years and he hasn't turned up. And friends, I want to say to you, just like in the first century, I don't think it's easy to stay the course as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think it's a straightforward thing. So if you had to nominate one thing, one thing that would make a difference to you in order to stay the course as a follower of Jesus, what would it be? What do you think is the most critical thing that helps you stay the course? I'm not going to get you to call it out, but I do want you to lock away what you think it might be, just in your own minds. Okay, what's the key? I think we pick it up in the first four verses, although it's riddled throughout the whole letter. Uh, the key is actually knowledge. Right, The key is Knowledge. Let me let me show you why I say that. In verse two of chapter one, Peter says, "Grace and peace be yours in abundance." How how do you have grace and peace in abundance? Well, through your knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You go to verse three. He's given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him. Now, verse five. We add to our faith knowledge. Verse 8, he says, don't be unproductive in your knowledge. Verse 9, he talks about the danger of forgetting what you know. (laughs) Verse 12, he says, I'm going to remind you of what you know. Uh, Verse 15, he says, remember what you know. And if I could almost go through almost every verse in this letter, where knowledge, forgetting, reminding, you know, that sort of idea comes through strongly. Peter is saying the key to the Christian life, the key to standing firm is knowledge. It is remembering. It is not forgetting. Now, at this point, you might say to me, ah, oh, this is just such a typical Bible teachers, evangelical, dry as dust approach. It's also cerebral, you know, you've, it's all based on what you've got in your, your brain. But where's the experience? Where's the experience of this relationship, this knowledge of God? So let me ask you, what does this, this knowledge of God, what does it mean? All right, let, let's just try and peel back the layers a bit and see what's going on here. Because it comes up in verses 2 and 3, this knowledge of God or this knowledge of him. But I want to suggest to you that what's being talked about here is not just um, uh, facts or information about God. That, that's not what's on view. Uh, you know, I could say to you, I know our Prime Minister... Malcolm Turnbull, okay? I know his middle name. Right? Who knows his middle name? Anyone know his middle name? See, I know him better than the rest of you, Right? <laughs> his middle name is Bly, right? Why you'd name him after a pirate, I don't know. But, you know, uh, Malcolm Bly Turnbull. He's married to Lucy. He has two children, Alex and Daisy. And that's about the extent of my knowledge of him, right? I don't know him all that well. But if if you ask me... You know, about my knowledge of Sue, right? Well, as you heard before, we've been married for how many years, Sue? No, no, it's 37 years. We've been married for quite, quite a long time. I know Sue really well. We've had extraordinary joys, right? We've had three children, one of whom is my favourite, you know? And, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, you know we've, we've had extraordinary experiences. We've had heartbreaks as well and troubles and struggles. And as you go through that with somebody, you get to know them in a profound sort of a way. That's more like the knowledge of God that's being spoken of here. It's a deep, rich knowledge. Come back to verses 1 and 2. Peter writes to those who, through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. See, when he's talking about knowledge, he's talking about a relationship with God. Rich, profound, deep, that comes about by believing the gospel about Jesus. It's that relationship. And in verse 2, we're told, God gives us grace and we have peace. Generous God, he gives us a full relationship with himself. And that knowledge of that relationship, the relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that's all you need. All you need. Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. Everything you need through our knowledge of him. This came home to me uh, this last week so a good friend of Trinity who's been around a lot longer than I have a man called Ian Bartlett uh, he had a fall at the gym Ian started attending Trinity City in the 1950s and he knocked his head right? this is why you shouldn't try and keep fit it's dangerous all right uh, he knocked his head but it was a serious injury and he was taken off to the the new Ra and they had to sedate him because he'd obviously suffered bruising And uh, for a week or ten days, they just had him quietly lying in his bed, recovering. Uh, Uncertain what damage had been done and uncertain about the implications. I visited him a couple of times. The last time was just uh, around the middle of this week. And I wasn't sure if he'd still be out of it or able to talk. And when I got to talk to him, he was obviously still very sedated. But he was able to say a few words, not much, Uh, But when I asked him how he was going, he said, trusting in Jesus. That's about all he could say. You see, what he was saying was, even in the most critical points where life is on the line, this knowledge of God, this relationship with God is foundational. It is the securing anchor to all of life. Peter writes, so they will know the security they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He then develops this idea of knowledge when you go to verses 5 through 11. So he talks about that growth in knowledge working itself out in growth in godliness in your life. Verse 3, we're told we're given everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him, for living in in godliness. Uh, Truth is meant to have an impact on our behaviour, right? If you've uh, got a cardiologist who's morbidly obese, you know there's a problem, right? He doesn't believe what he's trying to teach you. If you have a policeman who drinks and drives, you know he's not much of an advocate for his profession. You know, if you're having problems in your marriage and you go see a marriage counsellor who's been divorced six times, there's an issue, right? You don't necessarily trust their advice at that point. But same with uh, believers. There should be an alignment between what we know in our lives in fact knowledge that doesn't work itself out in that way is not truly understood knowledge it's not knowledge that has an impact on who we are now how do you know if that knowledge is being fruitful uh, if you're a gardener which I'm not uh, my, my my garden is a desert really uh, I, if you're a gardener though you measure your gardening skill by what's produced in your garden you know the fruit or the flowers or, or whatever whatever you'll tell me afterward what what's possible but you know it's that sort of measure is the way in which you work it out if you're a lawyer in a job uh, in the commercial world you measure your productivity in terms of your billable hours I worked out in six minute increments as you go through the day all right you can measure how much you've charged that's the way you do it you come up with this checklist through these verses of how to measure godliness. He talks about qualities such as goodness, self-control, perseverance, kindness, love. Now, all the characteristics being described here are able to be attributed to God himself. What we're saying is that you become more like the Lord Jesus Christ through your knowledge of God but I do want you to notice the process that occurs here so we don't get it back to front does your fruitfulness lead you into a relationship with God or does your knowledge of God lead you into fruitfulness let's it's the second one let me show you verse one we're told that faith is given to us that is we've received faith then in verse three we're told his divine power is at work in us in verse four we're told his He's given us his great and precious promises. And then in verse 5, we're to make every effort. Gift of God, gift of God, generous God, generous God at work in us. Therefore, make every effort. You see, God has evangelized us. He's brought us into a relationship with himself by his grace, which continues to work in us. And what we're doing is cooperating and growing more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. But I want you to note the unusual verses, verses 10 and 11, uh, down here. Uh, Peter says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and your election. I asked Barb what this meant before I got up to speak and, uh, and asked her why she didn't include this in the children's talk. Uh, <laughs> that is, it's actually tricky to get your head around, isn't it? Right? Is a relationship with God achieved by God's work in us or by what we do? When you read the Bible, it's very clear. It's by God's kindness and generosity towards us in Jesus. It's his initiative. God achieves our relationship with him from first to last, right? That's the way it goes. But here, what we're told, he says, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and your election so if, if faith is a gift from God who calls us, how can I possibly make sure of it and make sure I don't fall away? Isn't that, doesn't God secure me from falling away? So how does, how does that work? Right? So you can talk about that with your kids when you go home today. Right? No, I'm only kidding. Um, there are a couple of possibilities. Right? It, it could be, uh, just like you read in the book of James, where your faith... Is meant to show itself in actions in your life. It could be that sort of statement being made, although it doesn't really read quite like that. Uh, This month we're celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. John Calvin was one of those reformers. He had an interesting comment on this verse. He said he thought what was going on here in verse 10 was that it was a subjective assurance of objective salvation. subjective assurance of objective salvation. Now, that may not make any sense to you at all, so let me try and unpack it a bit. When do you doubt God's election and salvation? When do you doubt the security of your relationship with God and your confidence? When does it waver in that relationship? I think there can be lots of reasons that cause us to doubt Uh, you can get tired or, or depressed some calamity can you know struggle can come up in your life there can be a a heartache that you experience that just punctures your confidence about your relationship with God but I also think that one of the ways in which our confidence in our relationship with God is undermined is when we're struggling with sin see I think when we have an ongoing struggle with sin it can cause us to be ineffective in our knowledge. I'm sure you know that experience because sin often, I think, leads to doubt. We're tempted to hide from the truth, feel guilty, try and hide away from other people, uh, don't pray or read the Bible and tend to avoid other believers because we feel just bad every time we see them. You know that, that's the way in which sin just undermines your confidence in your relationship with God. And I think that's the sort of idea that Peter's got going here. Make sure you build on your knowledge of, of what you have in the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of God and keep working out that grace in godly living. And that reinforces the very confidence you have in the gospel of God. But, but let me at this point say, keep remembering how to deal with sin and to do it as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, not as someone who doesn't believe, right? The way, the way people, if they feel, feel guilty about the way they live but don't have a relationship with God, they try and turn over a new leaf. Right? That's the way in which people talk about it. Okay. The, the way Christians deal with their sin is not by turning over a new leaf. That's not a Christian way to think. Right? The way Christians deal with sin is verse 9. Remembering that we have been cleansed from past sins. Do you understand that the, the key power to the transforming of the Christian life is not by trying harder. The key power to the transformed Christian life and living is by remembering that you have been (coughs) forgiven. So you keep running to the cross of Jesus. That's the way guilt is dealt with. That's the power for living the godly life. Okay. We just need to keep remembering that in terms of the way we proceed. Let me move on. Verses 12 to 15. I think here we have one of the key tasks of Christian leadership, or in fact, the key for every Christian person. Uh, sometimes I, you know, I'll come out and visit here at the Northeast or some of the church, and afterwards someone will come up to me and say, you know, this morning I don't think I really learned anything new from the Bible, right? And at that point, what I do is I immediately recall 2 Peter 1 verse 6, Okay. Self-control, right? That's, uh, that's what I do at that point, right? Um, friends, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, let me talk to you at this point. Uh, the main reason you come to church is not to learn new things. You, you, that can't possibly be the case. And Peter reinforces that point here. Remember, he's about to die. When, when you're about to die, you do want to say something profound, don't you? Something deep, maybe something witty, so people laugh and then punch them in the stomach with something sad and you know, overwhelming you, want to, you know you like people to remember you don 't you when you 're dying apparently that 's the story i haven 't tried doing it yet, but you know that 's apparently the idea. Oscar Wilde, when he was on his deathbed, apparently he was a very witty, clever man, and he was in a room where there was fairly horrible wallpaper uh, plastered on the wall and as with one of his last dying breaths with people around him, he said. One of us has got to go, right? And he died, right? That's very memorable, isn't it? You know? Peter's about to die, right? You'd think he'd want to say something memorable, wouldn't you? Verse 12, this is what he does. I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. He tells them, he tells them things that they already know, They already understand, and they're already doing. Isn't that the ultimate redundancy? (laughs) I'm going to tell you stuff you already know, already understand, and already doing. I read an article about a pastor from the United States. He was voted one of the top 30 most influential pastors in the United States. <laughs> I can't imagine ever doing that in Australia. But uh, that's what happened uh, in the States. He, he was asked, what's, what's the key to being the pastor of a successful and a big church? And he said, the key thing is that the pastor has long tenure, is funny and preaches well. <laughs> now, uh, it seems to me that pastors, but actually all Christian leaders, are under pressure to see their job as a branch of the entertainment industry. The key to being a pastor or a home group leader or a teacher in Sunday school or fix or wherever it might be, the key is to keep reminding people of the gospel truths that they already know. That is the key. Nothing new. In Christian ministry, the word of God is essential and the task is essentially repetitive repetitive let me finish verses 16 to 21 we're encouraged to keep trusting in the promises of God now I mentioned earlier Peter's writing to a church that's being challenged by by false teachers. When we get to chapter two, we'll start to unpack some of that false teaching and how to deal with false teachers. It's actually one of the most savage chapters in the whole of the New Testament, so worthwhile reading ahead. It's also a bit puzzling, so again, worthwhile reading ahead. Chapter three, you get there and it's clear that people are denying that Jesus is going to return, uh, that, that he's ascended into heaven, and people are saying, No, he's not coming back, it's been too long. So what Peter says at this point is, what we believe and what we have taught you is no con. It's not, not a hoax. We haven't made stories up about Jesus. We don't have vivid and creative imaginations. That's not, not what's going on here. Peter says, what we passed on to you is based on revelation. It is received knowledge. Verse 16. We didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. When Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, uh, Peter didn't get the other apostles together for coffee and say, Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. I don't think that's a very good ending to the story what about we brainstorm a few ideas for how to finish this off, you know? And they said, well, you know, we could, we could talk about the fact that he's going to come back again in judgment, you know, to this world. If in, That's it. High fives and off they went, right? That isn't what happened. Verse 16, he says, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father. When the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came to us from heaven when we were with him and on that sacred mountain. Now the incident Peter's referring to is recorded a few times in the Gospels. If you want to look at it, Matthew chapter 17, great place to go. At that point, Jesus is on a mountain couple of his close followers, and Moses and Elijah, prophets from the Old Testament, they appear and stand with Jesus and they pay homage to Jesus as the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament, the prophets of the Old Testament, pointed to. And while they're there, they hear a voice from heaven. The Heavenly Father speaking and endorsing the Lord Jesus. And what we're being told is that Peter says, We reported what we saw, what we heard, the voice of God. We don't make this sort of stuff up. The apostles are clear. and say, so we, when we told you that Jesus was going to come back, we weren't lying. This wasn't a dream we had, you know, over Muesli and breakfast. We thought, good one, yeah, let's pass this one on. That wasn't what was going on here. Well, Peter says, we saw Jesus, we heard him. But not only that, we saw him on the mountain, blazing, fiery white. Moses and Elijah, the other prophets, acknowledging Jesus. Jesus, the one who told us he was going to die and rise again from the dead. And that's exactly what happened. He died, he rose from the dead, we saw it. This same Jesus said he will come back in glory to judge the living and the dead. He's already done what he said he would do about his death and resurrection. He will certainly complete the task and he will return in glory to judge living and the dead. He does what he says he will do. Friends, this is a chapter that is urging us to remember remember it is challenging to follow Jesus we live in a world that's focused so much on uh, tangible things we live in a world that uh, has a preoccupation with what you can see and taste and touch and feel and anything else is just irrelevant we live in a world where we are we are tempted uh, to sin and maybe there's some area that you, you're struggling with right now because it just seems it seems like what you're being told that not living the way jesus says, is, is more attractive than the promises of jesus we live in a world where we do experience heartache we live in a world where people And falls at the gym and suffer brain injuries or cancer or sudden death, or there are all sorts of things that we face in life heartache. We live in a world where, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, uh, you can copple out a stick, where people can treat you as being foolish and it can be tempting to tone it down just to try and blend in here we have the apostle peter friends he's on his last lap last lap and he says i'm writing to remind you of things that you already know remind you of things you already know and three times in this chapter, he says, verse 5, make every effort. Verse 10, make every effort. Verse 15, make every effort. Make every effort to cling tightly to the precious promises of God. Make every effort to cling to the wonderful grace of God that brings peace even in the most tumultuous of turmoils, make every effort let me pray for us, let's pray Heavenly Father we do we thank you for the wonderful and precious promises that we have in your word Uh, we thank you for this letter a letter that pushes us to keep remembering not, not new things so much as remembering truths that are the foundation and anchor for the soul and for life. And Father, we ask that you help us to keep remembering, uh, to keep taking on board these wonderful, true and precious promises. Uh, Father, we know that there are temptations to trust in other things, uh, to be distracted. Father, we know there are temptations just to experience what the world has to offer at this point in time. And yet we ask that our experience of our knowledge of you will be what forms the firm foundation for every aspect of our life. And Father, help us to keep reminding each other, encouraging each other not to forget when we're under pressure, uh, but as a community of people to keep supporting each other in these foundational truths as we anticipate and wait for that glorious day of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, it's not a day we can see, taste, touch and feel, but we know it is promised. And just as you've been faithful in fulfilling all your promises to us to date, that promise will be fulfilled. Help us to live, we pray, with that day in mind. And we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.